Well, guys, we're going to begin tonight. So if you want to grab a seat, get your Bible, we'll get started. I believe Oliver has a meeting right now, so we'll go without a little song for tonight. We're going to jump right into our study for the evening, our Bible study for tonight. So let's begin in a word of prayer and begin. Lord, we ask you to bless our evening tonight as we open your word, study your word, and what it says about leadership and some of the tasks of biblical leadership as we're called to all of us to disciple one another, admonish, help one another, even at times reprove and rebuke one another. We need to be governed and guided by your word, your will, which is in your word. We just want to do things by the book, by your book, by your will. And so enlighten us this evening, show us the truth about leadership that we might put into practice to the the betterment and the sanctification of your church, the building up of the body of Christ. So bless us tonight, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, well, welcome back. We've been off for some time now and away from this series on biblical leadership on Sunday nights since I think about mid-November. And in between, we covered a few other subjects. I took some time off to prepare for the Spain trip, and then I took the Spain trip and the holidays. Then last Sunday night, we had the Gideon speaker. So it's been, we've had some detours, but excited to be back and kind of get things back on track. Uh, that being said, there's no Sunday night next Sunday night because we have an elder retreat where all four of us are gone. But after that, we're, the calendar is just straight. We're not, no more breaks. We're, we should be solid until Mother's Day. Anyway, it's been a long break, so I feel the need to resituate where we are in this study. Something I do often here, but it's useful so we don't get lost in the forest amidst the trees. And so let's do that. You know, this, this series on biblical leadership. Why are we studying this? Which we started, I think it was last summer. Well, for one, just to learn what the Bible says about leadership, that's profitable in and of itself. But there is a more specific reason. We're just in a season of trying to raise up more leaders in the church and multiply people who just think like shepherds, engage in discipleship. That's something we're, we're trying to do. And so in many ways, as we seek to multiply leadership, this is some basic training for the whole church, for everybody. Uh, but it'll serve as a special basic training for those that the Lord might raise up as under shepherds and, and leaders here. And uh, how are we going about this? Well, we've divided this study into two halves, as I'm sure you remember. First half, which we've completed, was all about the preparation for biblical leadership. And we covered what, what makes a leader in the church. And we find it's not as much about how skilled you are or successful in the world's eyes, but more of who you are. Your character matters to the Lord more than anything, namely your, your Christ-likeness. Just looking at the requirements for the elder pastor, for example, it's, it's almost entirely not skill-based, but character-based. And God is looking for those who have a heart of Christ, they follow the example of Christ, and uh, they lead like Christ. And so for many months, we studied the preparation for biblical leadership, talking about some of the, uh, the essential marks that go into be- being or becoming a biblical leader. That's not, not to say that the tasks of leadership are unimportant. The tasks of leadership still matter. And so now we're, we're coming to the second half of this study, which is all about the practice of biblical leadership, from the preparation now to the practice. And the second half is designed to give you some of, some of that basic training when it comes to the major practices or duties or tasks of the leader in a local church. And again, throughout, when we say leader, we're not just talking about the pastor or the elder, but as we've learned, uh, anyone in, in a sense can function as a leader as they uh, pick up the task of discipleship and helping others become like Christ. And of course, some will rise up, and we're looking for that. Um, 
But we want to just give the whole church some exposure as to what goes into the, the practices of a leader in the church. And so we've covered some of the, just the downright basics, how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to biblically counsel. We've done those. They're on the website if you want to catch up. Those are all essential tasks of leadership in, in its various forms. And we have uh, several more how-tos to come. They'll be coming up as we are getting close to wrapping this whole study up, though. And anyway, specifically, though, for tonight, we carry on with how to reprove and rebuke. How to reprove and rebuke. It's uh, something you may not think about as a leadership task, but it's, it's there. It's up there. It's quite needed. Almost never discussed, though, at least I find in, in church settings. When was the last time you heard a Bible study on how to reprove and rebuke someone? Well, it's, it's good timing, though, in God's providence. I didn't want to, even though, again, we are off next Sunday, I didn't want to delay this any further. If you were here last Sunday morning, you recall the, the sermon was on from James 4, a judgmentalism, and really the right and the wrong place of judgment in the church. And it's got a lot of positive feedback. It's a topic I think people, like I said, never really hear about, hear discussed or preached through, and we're appreciative of, of some of the guidance there. And uh, it's, it's, it is something important to discuss and consider. And we're talking about specifically here now, judging others inside the church. There's a wrong side to this, a judgmentalism, where one seek, seeks to convict another person of sin, just to, for no other reason but to heap up condemnation upon them. You know, they're not trying to help them or restore them or counsel them. They're just trying to tear them down. They're sitting as judge. This comes from a place of self-righteousness, almost always a spirit of pride, the hypocritical judgment. And this type of judgment has no place in the church. That, that there is clearly a wrong type of judgmentalism that we must avoid. But as we learned in the sermon and tonight as well, there, there is a right type of judgment that the church is outright commanded to exercise, a judgment within now, always the term to judge, to be judgmental, that's, that's a loaded term, especially these days. It's almost always seen as a negative thing. But when we talk about judgment within the body, we mean really to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort a fellow believer. And these are all things God commands us to do in the, in the church, with fellow believers in the church. And these are actions, these are meant to be the actions of an ally, not an enemy, that we're approaching someone as if we're their enemy. We're trying to take them down. We're coming to them as a friend, an ally, a fellow brother and sister. We're just, we're just trying to help them to, to grow, to be like Christ, to overcome sin, to not be entangled running the race together. That's the heart behind this right type of judgment. Wage war against the flesh, and we all need help in that. It's where we have their best interests in mind, not coming out of some selfish interest or some hidden motive, but I just, I want to help this person grow in Christ, and I see an area in which they're stumbling. Isn't that what we found leadership is all about? That the, our essential goal, to help others become more like Christ. In Colossians 1.28, admonishing one another, as Paul says, to present every man complete in Christ. And that's our goal, and that's, that's the same goal here behind this leadership task. This actually is a task that God calls every Christian to participate in, to reprove and love and rebuke a, a sinning believer. But all the more would not be a, a task, or would it not be a task for the leader? It's an essential ability or, or duty of the leader 
uh, to do this and do it well, do it rightly and lead by example here. So this, this type of judgment is something we need to do, but it must be done right. It's something we're called to do, but the manner behind it matters very much as well. It's got to come from the right heart, for the right reasons, in the right manner. And when that happens, it can lead to some great things, some, some growth, sanctification, can have a good outcome. But that being said, I feel few people know how to do it. Like, okay, that all sounds good, but how do you actually do that? How do you have that conversation with someone? You, you witness someone in sin, like now you've got to go talk to them. Like, what do you say? How, do, how does that supposed to go? When it, again, when it's done right by God's grace, you can have really sanctifying and unifying results. But when it's done wrong, it can go wrong and it can have really bad results. It, things can turn south pretty fast. I'm not going to just wager that for a lot of you in here. Once upon a time, you, you tried to talk to someone about sin or you tried to talk to maybe a relative or friend about some problem or sin that you perceive in their life and it did not turn out well. It went south fast. Maybe it turned to a shouting match. Maybe the other person's pride was offended. They got really defensive. They just didn't see things the way you see them, and they angrily rejected everything you had to say, and it made the relationship worse. Maybe there's still a wedge because of how bad that went. And such experiences can then make people gun-shy about ever doing that again. Like, well, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to do that, but maybe it's not for me. Now, we can't control how others will respond to such conversations. We can only control ourselves. But that means we want to make sure we're doing the right thing, the right way, right motive, right manner. Uh, manner rather, There's a lot for us to consider. We want to make sure we're honoring the Lord and, and the means by which we're, we're doing all this. And the Bible has plenty to say about that. And again, especially in leadership, a lot of damage can be done in wrongly rebuking someone. If you're going to serve as any capacity of leader, even if just you're a small group leader or a ministry leader, and maybe there's someone under your little purview or, or care, and then they've gone astray or they're, they're kind of going off, they've got a blind spot of sin, you feel called to speak to them as we'll talk about, and you just you do it wrong from the wrong place or the wrong manner, there can be some serious fallout with the ramifications in a local church. And of course, we don't want that. Biblical commands make clear it's something we need to do, we're commanded to do, but how exactly do we go about it? Well, we're going to find out tonight. This is the point of this study, how to reprove and rebuke. And I guess you can add and exhort, all three words we'll be looking at. Let's begin by just studying the command, the command to rebuke, just to summarize, the command to rebuke. And we start by asking, is this something we really, like we, we have to do? We really need to do this? Is there really a command in Scripture telling us something we need to do? Of course, if you're here for the sermon last Sunday, you already know the answer is yes. But I mean, it, it sounds scary. Like, we've got, I've got to talk to another Christian about their sin. I've got to have like a one-on-one -on -one talk. Like, I don't want to do that. I think for a lot of people next to public speaking, having to approach someone over sin is like the, the last thing they would ever want to do. For a lot of people... Fear of man, maybe they're just, uh, they're, they're scared. But what does scripture say about this as a responsibility for Christians? Um, I'll point out, if you actually were gone last Sunday, it's on the website, go ahead and listen to that sermon. It's going to cover uh, some different ground that we can't cover tonight, but it'll give you an important framework, especially for 
the right and wrong place of judgment outside the church with, with unbelievers. Tonight, our only goal is to talk about judgment within, with fellow believers. And the, the word has a lot to say about that. Something God has in store for all believers, but again, especially for those serving in leadership, something you need to know. And let's just begin by establishing a, a framework text, uh, an important text that will kind of set the stage for us. So open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll start in verses 1 and 2. You recall this is Paul writing to Timothy, who's serving as a minister, a preacher, a leader. And of course, these words are going to be most relevant to preachers, but ex- still extremely relevant to all who lead by ministering the word. And uh, in essence, that should be every leader, as we learned the ministry of the word is our primary tool in all biblical leadership. Familiar text in Timothy 4, 1 through 2, where he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Okay, so here, what's In this passage, real quick, what's the main command? Preach the word. Okay. Main command is to preach preach the word. Paul is promoting to Timothy the ministry of the word, which that's something we've talked about in great detail when it comes to leadership in the past. The word of God, that's our primary tool for helping others grow and change and become like Christ. You can see in verse 1, how serious is this charge to preach the word? Pretty high stakes, right? I mean, he solemnly charges you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who, by the way, he's going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom. He's like throwing everything in there like, this is a big charge. Like, don't get this wrong. A lot is riding on this charge to preach the word. And and that could be its own sermon on how essential the preaching of the word is in the life of the church. But it's a big deal. And then look at verse 2. Specifically, what is the preached word meant to accomplish or do in the lives of those who hear? Go ahead, just give it to me. It's just observation. And before that, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Yeah, there you go. He qualifies preaching the word with these three terms that as you preach, this is what will happen through the preached word. People who hear will be reproved. They, They will be rebuked. They will be exhorted. And he has to do this with patience and instruction. But you understand preaching is is more directed at the will. It's teaching, you might say, if we're going to split hairs, teaching is more directed at the mind. That's maybe purely instruction, like here's information. And that's needed from time to time, just have a, a foundation of knowledge. But preaching is always meant to direct the heart, the will, and to convict and the instruction will be added, but it's primarily shot, that arrow is shot at the heart, and therefore, reprove, rebuke, exhort, that's, that's the main thrust of preaching the word, to affect the will of, of God's people. Now, these three terms, in many ways, in many other places, they're used synonymously in Scripture, but they each have a, a slightly different shade of meaning, so let's, let's quickly talk about these three terms, and what the preached word is supposed to do, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Reprove, elenko. In Greek, in the New Testament, means to convict, to prove one in the wrong. 
and to convict of sin. I'm going to rattle some verses quickly. John 8, 46, where Christ said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Same word. Or in John 16, verse 8, where the Holy Spirit, he says, will come and will convict the world concerning sin and convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. And so it's an idea of convicting of sin. And it can sometimes carry the idea of rebuke, like 1 Timothy 5.20. It's speaking of the elders, and it says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. The word is actually the same word here for reprove. It's just it's an idea of chastisement. You're, you're showing and convicting them of wrongdoing. And so it can be similar to rebuke or to admonish, but again, the emphasis with this word is a conviction of sin, a conviction of wrongdoing. Matthew 18, 15, a verse, a big verse we'll look at later, says, if if your brother sins, you see your brother sin, go and show him his fault in private. Remember that verse, the beginning of the church discipline passage? That term for show him his sin is this term, to reprove them. You are convicting them of their sin. You're saying you've done wrong. Conviction, reproof. That's our first term. So to reprove is to show someone their sin, their fault, or their wrongdoing. That's you might say in a sense, step one, showing them their fault or wrongdoing, reproof. Secondly, reproof or rebuke, epitimao in the New Testament, to punish, to rebuke, to charge. And this word carries more the nuance of of offering correction to someone, where you you want them to change. In the New Testament, or the disciples, as you recall, they frequently but wrongly tried to rebuke Jesus because they thought he was doing the wrong thing, so they rebuked him to make him change. So Matthew 16, 22, after Christ announced he's going to be crucified, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Like, that's wrong. You, You have to change. Or Matthew 19, 13, children were brought to Jesus, and so the disciples rebuked the children. It, it's convicting of wrongdoing, but more an idea of you need to stop doing that. You need to change. Such rebuke has, a mind, uh, has in mind a changed desire, or excuse me, such rebuke has in mind a desired change in behavior. When you're rebuking someone, you, you clearly, they've been reproved, like you're doing wrong, and now you need to change. A rebuke is... In many respects, a call to change. And I think for this reason, this word was used of Christ's interaction with nature when he wanted to change nature. Like Matthew 8, 26, there's a storm. So he rebukes the storm and it becomes calm. This word is used here where he wanted it to change. What what the storm was doing was not to his pleasing. So he rebukes it and becomes calm. But of course, when it comes to personal relationships, To rebuke someone is to admonish them strongly with a sense of urgency and a goal of having them change some action. So after you convict someone of wrongdoing, to rebuke is really to charge them to repent and change. If we're going to boil it down, to rebuke is to charge them to repent and change. And then we come to the third term, to exhort, parakaleo. This word means to aid or help or comfort, also to call for, to beseech someone. And it's sometimes used of calling upon someone for aid or help. But in the realm of conflict, it's used to uh, call upon someone to do something. 
In this, in this case, it means really to exhort them, to admonish them. You're beseeching them to do something. And it has the idea of telling them what to do, telling someone something to do. Hebrews 3.13, it says, encourage one another or exhort one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I exhort you, be imitators of me, to call to action, right? 1 Peter 5.1, Peter says, I, your fellow elder, exhort you, to the elders there, to shepherd the flock of God. It's a call to action. And so this word for exhort, it carries more of the sense of a call to action. It focuses less on what the person did wrong or failed to do, and focuses more on well, what they need to do now, what they need to do next. And so to exhort is to call someone to change, and we might say to replace wrong behavior with right behavior. This is how they need to change, to exhort. And so in a way, if you combine these three words together, you can see how God intends the ministry of the word to, to, to fully change someone, to rebuke or to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Where God, through the word, a person will be convicted of sin, reproved. They'll be corrected of their misdeeds, rebuked, and then called to new action, exhorted. And Timothy is to wield the word to this end. And the same goes for us in leadership. We, as we use the word in discipleship, we should see people reproved where they're convicted by the word. It's not us, not our authority, but they're convicted by the word of wrongdoing. Like, hey, that thing you're doing is wrong. Be convicted, reproved, and then be rebuked. Like, you need to change. You need to repent and turn. And then here, be exhorted. Here's what you need to do instead. Here's how to follow Christ. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And understand the word of God will have this effect on people, on God's people. Whether you intend it or not, if you are faithful to minister the word, it will have this effect. It will reprove, rebuke, and exhort. It's just built into God's word. And in a true believer, we can trust the Holy Spirit to do that work of convicting them and changing them. And so for us, we just need to be faithful in the ministry of the word, whether you're a preacher or or a Bible study leader or, or whatever. As you minister the word in any capacity, you'll, you'll see this happen. Now, we're still called to do this with skill and care, especially if it's, you might say, a personal discipleship relationship, a one-on-one or a one-on-few, one-on-small group relationship you might have as a leader. We, you want to do this with skill and care. We'll learn more about that. Now, first, before we move on, here's a few other verses that just stress the need and the urgency for Christians to Help other Christians see their sin. You have Titus 2.15. It's actually very similar to 2 Timothy 4.2. We're speaking of the gospel. Paul tells Titus to speak these things and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Like that we minister the gospel. And as we minister the gospel, it's kind of, we're going to speak We're going to exhort and we're going to reprove. It's just, like I said, it's built into God's word. And as we minister it, that's what's going to happen. Luke 17, 3, where Christ said to his disciples, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So Christ gives a pretty simple and straightforward command. If you see your brother sin, like kind of like Matthew 18, well, rebuke him. 
And then if he repents, forgive him. You have an example in Galatians 2.11 where uh, Peter came to Antioch and he got influenced by the Judaizers so that he was no longer eating with the Gentile Christians. And in Galatians 2.11, Paul said, when he came, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul had to personally rebuke, reprove Peter because he had temporarily stumbled and, and had a blind spot and was acting hypocritically. He had to be rebuked. So even an apostle is not beyond this. None of us are. We all can have a blind spot where we're not just seeing something perhaps. And uh, that's when a rebuke, a reproof is in order. And then, of course, there's 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. And if we covered that last Sunday, we're not going to have time to cover it again tonight. But that's just a key passage on the need to judge those in the church. And really, the whole passage stressing the importance of judging not the outsider, but the insider. And you can reference uh, last Sunday's sermon for that. Now, thinking as a church, big picture as the church, why is this so important? Why is it so important that the church takes these commands seriously to reprove, rebuke, and exhort fellow believers who are caught in sin? Why does this matter so much? What are the stakes here? Like, why do we, why do we need to do this? Makes us different. The, word, the, the world is going to tolerate sin, but in the church, per 1 Corinthians 5, well, we're not going to tolerate sin, okay? Keeps us different from the world. Okay, so promotes sanctification. Uh, uh, we might say the purity of the church, where that's our goal, right? Christ-likeness, and this is a, a huge way we're going to promote Christ-likeness in another person's life by not tolerating their sin, helping them overcome. And then you, we're going to quote, little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. Uh, again, on the purity of the church, the holiness of the church, where as sin is tolerated and like 1 Corinthians 5, just ignored even, it, it will quickly spread. And uh, you'll see a culture of, in the church of, of tolerating sin. And Christ wants a holy, pure bride. And this is, what, this is what's at stake. You're going to say something, Tim? Yeah, so avoiding offense or stumble to others. Yeah, very good. Now, on a more personal level, so that was kind of on the church level, big picture level. Now think maybe on a one-on-one personal level. Why do you think God wants us to get involved in the lives of someone, in the life of someone else and rebuke them over their sin? And, and why might we need this from others? Win them back. So that's going to be the end of, was that you? Was that you? Okay, I, I couldn't, I wasn't looking. You guys can sound a little alike. At the end of James 5, we'll see that coming. The very final passage in James. Or if uh, you turn a, a brother back in sin, you, you save his soul from death and, and a multitude of errors. And it's just that the, the turning someone back who's going astray uh, in, a, in a bigger way, that's a huge element here. And if you had such a blind spot, wouldn't you want someone to do that for you? Uh, that, that's likewise 2 Timothy 4, if you look at verses 3 and 4. If you're still there, 2 Timothy 4. After he says, preach the word, he says, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's just when the, when the word is sidelined, it's so quick and easy for falsehood to pile up and pile in and for people to go astray. We need 
the constant correction that comes from the word, right? We need those little, those checks. They're like, like the rail, uh, the guardrails on a street. And if we're just kind of wildly driving in the flesh, sometimes we need those guardrails to keep us on the road and it might hurt, but we need to be kept in. And, and the word, as it convicts us, sometimes cuts us, but that's good. We need those calls, those rebukes, those reproofs. When that's absent, uh, you, you can go off the road pretty fast and you can go off a cliff sometimes. And we need the word to do that. Also keep in mind that we read earlier Hebrews 3.13. You know, encourage one another, reprove one another, rebuke one another uh, every day. And he says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've used this illustration many times, but it just keeps coming to my mind of, of our backyard. Got the weeds, just kind of a big hillside, lots of weeds. And every summer I've got to do weed abatement for the fire department, Right. And if you catch it early, if I do the weeding early in the season, it's much easier. The, the weed whacker just kind of melts through them all. They're kind of, they're thin, easy. But if I, if I let it go to like the deadline, which is I think end of June or something like that, they've grown thick and hardy. They're, they're dead, but they're thick. And uh, it's much harder to get rid of those weeds. It's, it's a long, long day or two of labor if you let it go. And so it goes for sin in our lives. If, if you just let it go unchecked. You see a brother in sin or a blind spot, an area of sin in his life, and you don't say anything, it will grow worse and worse. It will, that, that sin, that weed will grow stronger and stronger, and it will be much harder to remove. It will come with greater consequences, hardship, suffering. But if you are able to rebuke or approve someone and they receive it early on, you might spare them from a lot of hardship as the Lord works in their life to help them overcome a sin. So we're doing this out of love to help others ultimately just become more like Christ. Now, how would you respond if, if you, you try and do this to a fellow believer and they accuse you of being judgmental and unloving? What might you say back? They just say like, who are you to tell me all this? Even if it's irrational, they just say you're being judgmental and unloving. What, what might you say in response? Okay, so you, for one, you can and you should affirm your love. That even though they may not see it this way, you need to convince them of your love. That to the contrary, I'm telling you these things because I love you. Because I'm your friend. Uh, a, a phony friend is going to ignore the bad things in your life, the sin in your life. Because they're doing that in their own lives. A true friend, would, would not a true friend who loves you tell you the hard things, even if there's, there's risk of relationship, but... They, they, they so have your best interests in mind, they'll tell you what you need to hear. Isn't that a true friend? Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, uh, but deceitful are the wounds of an enemy. And so you, you want to convince them that you know, this is true love, that you're, you're doing this out of obedience to Scripture, and it's an act of love according to Scripture. Okay, what about judgmental, though? They say, like, but you're just being judgmental. Who are you to judge? And what would you say to that? Yeah, very good. That you're, this is not a personal issue and, and you're not the one judging them. And this is not coming from you or your authority. Like this is something the Bible talks about, both for me to approach you. Here's a verse or two on that. And, both, and also with what's going on in your life. Like this is something God has to say about this. In a sense, you are being judgmental. You are 
showing them sin, you're convicting them of sin and wrongdoing. That's, that's a judgment call, right? Like this is wrong. That, that's a judgment call. But again, that's, it's, it's really God's judgment call, not yours. And you're just communicating God's judgment call. But in another sense, you're not being judgmental at all, at least not like the world or a hypocritical, hypocritical Christian, because you don't say these things to condemn them. You're saying this to, to help them. You have their best interests in mind. And again, you, you really need to communicate that, that you love them. This is, this is for their best. You're not telling anybody or gossiping. You're just telling you because I love you and I want to see you grow in Christ. You would hope that would be received. But look, at the end of the day, you can, you can simply fall back on, well, the, the Bible tells me so, tells me to do this, and this is what Jesus does. Listen to Revelation 3.19. Revelation 3.19, where Christ says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's his message to the church of Laodicea. That was the lukewarm church. They were lukewarm in their devotion, putting themselves at risk of judgment. And because Christ loved them, he reproved them and rebuked them and told them to repent and return. And again, it is an act of love. For us to approach others over their sin in the right manner, it's really a fulfillment of the second greatest command and the golden rule put together. Second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. Very similar to the golden rule. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Kind of put them together and approaching someone in sin that you're doing both. And again, if you had some sin in your life that for some reason you just, you couldn't see. It was a blind spot or you were unwilling to see. Right now, would you not, would you, would you not want someone to come and in love and gentleness show it to you? And say like, I don't think you see this or maybe you do, but you've got, you've got a problem here. And the Lord says, this is not for your best. I would think a mature Christian would say, well, yes, I would, I would want someone to come in the right manner, but I would, I would welcome someone to approach me in the right way. Well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You, you be that good friend to someone. You be that faithful friend. Now, as we'll see later, this governs the manner in which we talk to someone in that conversation. Would you want someone to, to deal with you harshly and, and rudely or kindly and gently, well, okay, you likewise do the same. You're going to have that conversation as you would want someone to have that with you. Uh, But we just want to be faithful to do for us the right thing. So anyway, there are, there are plenty of commands here. This is not really optional. Something God expects for his people in the church to be guarding one another, helping one another, and at times reproving, rebuking, and exhorting one another. Now, we're about ready to get to the how-to side of it, but one last little quick preliminary uh, discussion to throw in here. One final topic on overlooking offenses. Real quick, overlooking offenses. So we've seen just the command, a, a framework text, and other passages that make clear, we need to do this, reprove, rebuke, exhort. But always, I mean, do you always have to confront someone when you see them do wrong? Is it ever acceptable to God that we overlook what someone did instead of rebuke them? So what would you say to that? Like 10 out of 10 times you have to rebuke them or can you overlook? What would you say?
Good. Now, clarify that distinction he said. Was the offense an actual sin or just something else? And so what do you mean by an unintentional thing? Good, so making some distinction between sin and maybe uh, an offense. And so you would say you could overlook the offense. Yeah, good. And I would agree with that. You know, there's some verses like Proverbs 19.11. It says, it is glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. And someone might quote that and say like, hey, can't you overlook? And there are some cases where you can overlook. And wisdom might say, it's better to overlook. And so, like Kevin was saying, maybe it's a situation of a personal offense. It's not a clear-cut sin. There's no sin intent, but someone offended you. Like, they come over to your house after it rains, and they just weren't thinking that they track mud in the house. Like, you can't really accuse them of serious sin unless they were malicious. Could have just been accident, oversight. But they certainly offended you. And so, what are you going to do? I mean, you can strongly rebuke them, but you'd, you'd be in the wrong there. They, they have not clearly sinned. It would be much wiser to, in love and grace, just overlook that offense. If it's a repeat offender, well, then you, you can have a, a gracious talk with them, but you can overlook. It's also tricky sometimes you see someone acting foolishly. And scripture, in a way, separates sin issues from wisdom issues. Sin issues are always black and white. Wisdom issues, you have the difference between just wisdom and folly. You might see someone acting foolishly. They're not outright sinning, but you see them making foolish choices in life that you think are going to bring hardship on them later on. And that's where you, you might approach, you might overlook. Or you might appeal to someone, a close friend of theirs, some a voice in their life that they would listen to, to appeal to as a voice of wisdom. But sometimes making a distinction between sin issues and wisdom issues might lead you to well, maybe, maybe I might wait on this or get more information or, or befriend them more. But I do think Scripture is clear that if you witness someone in a clearly defined unrepentant sin, then there's no overlooking that. You, you need to go to them. We don't see exceptions for witnessing clearly defined unrepentant sin in the life of a professing believer. It's, it's on you. You're the witness. You've witnessed it. It's on you now to, to say something. It's not easy to identify even this because a lot of times you have sins of the heart that kind of seem invisible, like anxiety, discontentment, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, envy. It's kind of heart-level sins. They're not always attached to an action. You still want to tread carefully and be very clear if you're going to talk to someone about a heart-level sin. That's always a conversation where you can't fully see within their heart. So you need a strong dose of humility if you're ever going to talk to someone about a heart-level sin. doesn't mean you don't do it, but that's where you, you tread extra carefully because it's not like you've witnessed them rob 7-Eleven, you know, like, or something like that. It's, it's like, well, I, I feel this person really struggles with greed. And uh, you might, over time, just pray about that, consider that, and uh, it would be more of an appeal to them because you have to convict them of a heart-level sin that you aren't 100% certain of. Uh, that can be a little more tricky. It doesn't mean we ignore these, but 
it may present more of an opportunity to come alongside someone in love and just, just challenge them and help them grow. Mason? Well, that's all we really have to go by. You'll know them by their fruits. So we look at the externals because that's all we can. I mean, I can't truly see into someone's heart. Hard enough to sometimes discern the own motives or the motives of your own heart, let alone someone else's heart. So you can judge someone else's motives, but not accurately. And so there, I think you're you're wiser to refrain. Uh, Better to, I mean, we, we go by actions and words, like you say, we judge fruit, the externals. If the externals are clear cut sin, well, then, well, we've got rebuke. We'll talk about later. But if, if it's not clear-cut sin, I'm always of the opinion, like, I'm going to lean towards grace. You've got law and grace. I'm, gonna, I'm always going to land on the side of grace and appeal to the person. And even if I strongly believe they have sinful motives, my goal is to get them to see that for themselves and to convict themselves because I can't fully do that. I can't see or judge their heart. I can, though, present to them a strong case of, like, here's, here's a bushel of fruit, of, of bad fruit. And this all is coming from somewhere, and it's going to be some evil motive. So I want to help them connect those dots, and uh, you know I, I can lead them to that direction. Uh, but those heart-level issues, just tread carefully. You want to be careful. Okay. Now, also just remember to discern what category a person is in. We say this often, but always keep in mind Second Thessalonians, or rather, First Thessalonians five fourteen. Remember this verse where he says. Uh, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And so you, you want to save your rebukes or admonishments for the one who is unruly. They're, they're in unrepentant sin. Some people, they're, they're sinning, but they're already broken. They're already repentant. Like I mentioned in the sermon, like they've already judged themselves. So you don't need to rebuke them. They've, they've already rebuked themselves. They know they've done wrong and they're repentant, but they're just faint-hearted. They're weary from the fight. They're weak. And that person doesn't need the admonishment or rebuke. They need encouragement, prayer, accountability. You're you're coming alongside them at that point to help, not to uh, rebuke. Uh, So make that distinction. Be careful to make that distinction. We're talking about the unruly person caught in trespass and sin. So, you know, there might be times, wisdom will say, where you might overlook an offense or tread carefully with Uh, something not so clear-cut, a heart-level issue. But if you do have someone being unruly, you have seen or witnessed uh, something clearly defined as a sin in their lives, unrepentant sin, how do you actually go about talking to them? Now we'll we'll spend the rest of our time and might go a tad bit over time talking about the how-to. So how do you do that? Okay, it's time to do it, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What do you do? How do you do it? And here, I, I just, whenever this situation comes up or this topic comes up, you know, I, ever since uh, my time in seminary, I was so heavily influenced by this resource. I always just lean on this. I, I haven't come up with anything better myself, so I'm just going to keep leaning on this and give full credit to the resource, the book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. You guys heard me talk about it three, four, five times from the pulpit. It's been very influential. By Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It's just a biblical guide to resolving sin and conflict in your life, the lives of others. And he presents just a really well thought out biblical teaching. Like I said, I 
can't really improve upon it. So I'll happily use it, give him all the credit for this outline. It provides a simple framework for, for doing this. Whether it's a personal conflict that you're engaged in, you know, you, someone has sinned against you, for example. Even can be applied to, you just, you see a brother in sin. You can apply these steps, this framework to like, what do you do? How do you, how do you be a peacemaker? How do you help them resolve that sin or conflict? Maybe you, you, uh, you catch a fellow believer in a serious lie and they're not repentant and you're the primary witness. And so you, you believe it's on you to, to say something. Okay, so what are you going to do? Like what's step one in your mind? You, you've witnessed the sin. You, you know it's on you to, to say something. What do you do? What's step one? And I think for most people, the first thing that comes to their mind is, okay, what am I going to say to this person? How do I start that conversation? Your mind immediately goes to that person and their sin. But what I appreciate so much about the peacemaker is that it stops that and says, no, no, no. Before you get to that person and that sin, let's, let's back up and worry about God and worry about yourself and get right before God and yourself. And then we'll talk about the person. You're still going to have to do that, but just does things in the right order. So let's talk about these steps. There's four of them. It's the four G's. For some of you who've been around, heard me talk about this before. Hopefully this is a review. You can, you can quiz yourself. Four G's. The first, glorify God. The first step is not, you know, go rebuke the person, but glorify God. This is a mental step. It's just, you're just getting your mind right. In 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 10.31, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I'd say it's safely applied to reproving, reproving or rebuking a fellow believer. And this first step should be obvious, but it's not always. Especially in the case where someone has sinned against you and you need to talk to them about a personal sin. It's very easy for us, for our own pride to be offended. And we, we're just concerned about maybe getting them back or proving them wrong. And the glory of God quickly escapes our point of view. We can't get to that point, though, our ultimate focus in such situations should never be ourselves or even the other person. Our ultimate focus has to remain one thing and one thing only, and that's the, the glory of God. We just I want to see God honored and glorified in this whole thing. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's the big picture, the bottom level foundation that, that should never change. So our sights have to be always set on God from start to finish in this whole process. And you'll see how that, that governs everything else. If you're concerned about your glory, you're going to get it wrong. If you're concerned about just winning or getting back at a person, it's going to go south. But if you can truly set your sights on, I, I will do whatever I'm called to do to see that God is glorified in this whole thing. And that's all you can control, by the way, your side of that. Then you can, you can have a clear conscience, however it turns out. And Lord willing, it will go well. So this first step Glorify God. It's really a mental checkpoint. It's a mental step. It's all in your mind. You're checking yourself. You're checking your heart. You're checking your motives. You first, you're asking yourself, like, why do you want to talk to that person? And even if you've seen them in sin, like, okay, but in your heart of hearts, why do you want to talk to them? Is it to condemn them? Do you want to prove them wrong so you kind of get a little level up on them? Do you want to Make yourself look better. Make yourself look more righteous. Obviously, these are all the wrong atti- attitudes. And if, if you're motivated by these self-serving, self-glorifying attitudes, you're, you're going to get everything else wrong and it's probably going to go south. 
God does not bless that. He's opposed to the proud, right? And that this all comes from a place of spiritual pride. You're trying to win something, wrong motive, wrong attitude. Reproving and rebuking someone is not about proving a point or winning an argument or getting a one-up on someone. Your goal and mindset must simply be glorify God. I just want God to be honored. And that's not going to control everything I say and do from here on. It's going to be governed by the glory of God. And so here you can ask in this first step, you know, like, how can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? What would that look like for me to please God in this situation? That's going to govern your actions and your words. This is going to keep you from falling into sin, which that, that happens all the time, right? Maybe in a marital strife or conflict, one party is sinned against the other. They're in the wrong. The other party tries to deal with it. But how quickly do they fall into sin? And now everyone's got mud on them. Like it's, it's happened so quickly and easily. But if you can catch yourself and say, I'm, I need to control myself, my emotions and whatever, and uh, keep myself from falling into sin, uh, keep myself from falling into anger and unrighteousness. When it comes to personal conflict, how strongly that diffuses conflict, by the way, when you can just remain humble throughout. But anyway, you also ask, you know, how can I serve this other person? Is, not, is that not how we glorify God? One of the main ways by just by serving the other person, loving the other person. I have their best interests in mind. Now, Galatians 6, 2 calls us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ he says in verse 10, do good to all, but especially those who are of the household of the faith. This, you are helping them. As we said before, this is, this is second greatest command and golden rule. When you're talking to them, if you're, if you're faithful to do it the right way, the right heart, it's an act of brotherly love. This is an act of Christ-like love. God is glorified by this. And you want to just keep that in your mind. I am serving this person. They may not always see it that way. Like, oh yeah, right. You're serving me here. Talking to me about my sin. But if you have that humble attitude, that, that really is, according to the Bible, what you're doing. You are helping them see an enemy. You're like a doctor sh- showing test results. Like, you know, you've got some bad results here. How can I help you? Keep that in mind. And lastly, you can ask, how can I be a witness to what Christ has done for me? You're recognizing like, you know, before God, I'm a, I'm a pretty big sinner too. I have sinned plenty before God, but how does he deal with me in Christ? Gently, graciously, forgiveness, he forgives me. He's long-suffering, he's merciful. And so again, this, this here is going to govern your attitude with the other person. Even if it is a personal sin, well, I'm going to show them grace and mercy and compassion and long-suffering. And uh, when the time comes, forgiveness as well. It's going to treat them how I have been treated by the Lord. You put these together like this is an attitude of one who wants to just honor God. Be a witness. Love one another. And this is going to set you right. So get this first step. You have to get this first step right in your heart before you proceed. The step one, though, is just vertical. Step two is introspective. You're still not jumping to the other person, but the second G is get the log out of your own eye. Remember that? Some of you, you're nodding. Get the log out of your own eye. You know about this principle, but it, it may not have jumped to your mind right away because we're, we can, we're, so quickly, uh, we're so quick to focus on the other person and their problems and their sin. But this is a command from Christ to check yourself first. You can turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 
You know, we're very quick to point out the sin of others, but we need to be quicker to identify our own sin. And we need to judge ourselves before we judge others. This is really another critical step. And this step takes place before you say a word to the other person. You are, you are judging yourself first. Like we point out in the judgmentalism sermon, you must judge yourself first every time. Just you're checking your own life. And this is meant to guard against hypocritical judgment because nothing will turn that conversation south like hypocrisy. If you come to someone to rebuke them, but you're guilty of the same thing or something similar, like it's not going to go well. And should it? You're the hypocrite. And Christ convicts us of that here. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. As we learn that talking about hypocritical judgment. He says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, as we mentioned before, there's still a need to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. That's not out of this equation. Someone might have something in their eye, something in their life that they can't see, they can't remove themselves, and they'll need a brother who loves them to come and show them that and to help them. But of course, it's a simple image here that you can't do that if you're blind yourself. You can't do that if you're not seeing clearly. If, if your own sin has clouded your spiritual vision, you're of no benefit. You're of no place to help someone uh, see their own sin. You're going to do more harm than good. I mean, would you trust an eye surgeon who forgot his glasses that morning? I don't think so. And likewise, you don't want another believer rebuking you who's being blinded by their own sin, it's just not going to go well. And you make sure you do the same for others. You just examine yourself first. And this is meant to humble us. We need to be humbled over our own sin. And maybe you'll find something in your own life. Then you repent yourself. In humility, you're honestly evaluating yourself. You're asking, is, is there any sin in your own life you need to repent of, especially in concern to uh, the issue at hand. Like if you catch that other believer lying, you know, like, you know, am I guilty? Have I lied in the, you know, in the recent past? Or am I struggling with lying or, or whatever? And this is not a check for perfection, as if you can only reprove someone if you're morally perfect, because then we could never reprove others, right? That's not what we're talking about here. This is a check for unrepentant sin and hypocrisy in your own life. And also, you know, consider if you're dealing with a, a conflict with another person, here you would ask, and are there any ways you contributed to this conflict? They may have sinned against you. Maybe they even started it. Like they, they initiated the conflict. But here in humility, you would ask, like, have I contributed to the conflict? Have I had a part to play in maybe escalating this thing? Or have I sinned in this conflict? And you're going to repent first. You be the, the more mature believer. You take the higher road and you obey Christ. Take the log out of your own eye. Here's how... I sinned against you in that conflict. Here's how I contributed to this conflict and made it worse. You don't worry about them first. You worry all about you and you ask for their forgiveness. You humbly apologize and ask them to forgive you in the Lord. And 
You might be surprised how quickly that can diffuse uh, a heated conflict and uh, the Lord can use that to humble the other person. That, that really is more relevant if you have a personal conflict. If you're just dealing with someone who has just sinned in general, not against you, but they've just sinned, you, you're still doing this step. You're just giving yourself a check to make sure you're not playing the hypocrite when you do have that conversation with them. Now, let's, let's move on to that third step, though, where you're, you're finally going to talk to the other person after all this. But it's appropriate, right? Glorify God first. Get the log out of your own eye second. Third is gently restore. Third G, gently restore. Gently restore. After you've taken the log out of your own eye, now you see clearly. And uh, you, you are now qualified to help in humility your brother or sister deal with his or her sin. Instead of pretending that the sin or the conflict does not exist, you're going to graciously show your brother his sin in love and urge him to repent. Keep in mind, this step is called gently restore, not harshly condemn. And I think Ken Sandy words it that way on purpose, because that's, that's typically how these conversations go. It's a, it feels like harshly condemning when you're talking to someone about their sin. It's, it's harsh, it's condemning. But the Bible says it's gentle, Galatians 6.1. And you who are spiritual, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So even still, we're always to be gentle and gracious. And the goal is restore, restore such a one. We're not, we're not doing this to condemn. And that's where we would say, like, like the, the Bible says, you know, God will judge in the end. He's the one where if the person is truly in the wrong, we can count on God to discipline or condemn. That's not our place. And we're not trying to condemn. We're trying to restore. That's, that's our goal here. And so gently restore is what this step is all about. If you're in Matthew 7, just flip over to Matthew 18, which is really the simplest and clearest passage that teaches this step. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and this passage gets all the attention as being the church discipline passage. But do you realize all church discipline begins with a one-on-one, or should begin with a one-on-one conversation. And, uh, and that's, as you do this, you are in a, in a sense doing church discipline. It's just what we call step one. Uh, hopefully it goes no further. We might sometimes pay more attention to the later steps, but here we're, we want to pay most attention to the first step, the command of the Lord. Matthew eighteen fifteen, he says, if your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. Show, reprove. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And of course, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're focusing here mostly on verse 15, though. That's the personal, the first step, the personal step. And notice it always begins personally. You, you see your brother sin, you don't immediately gossip or tell others or even tell your pastor. You're not bringing others with you. You're, just, you're going to first approach them personally. You are, after all, the primary witness to this sin, right? You, you've seen your brother sin. 
And so if someone else, they're not a witness at this point, they don't have a part to play. It's like, you have been the witness. You're the first, the primary witness. You deal with it. And also it's privately. It's personal and it's private. You're doing this in private. You're not broadcasting their sin to all. You're showing them a measure of grace and not just letting the world know what they've done. And that, that's uh, a means of grace. But what do you say? Okay, go and show him his fault. Reprove him in private. Okay, that's good. But then, like, how is that meeting going to go down? Like, what are you actually going to say? Or how do you do that? And here, if I can just kind of give some biblical wisdom, let me give you five, I don't know, tips, pointers, directions. I didn't come up with that beforehand. Probably should have. Five directions on how to show someone their sin. Five directions on how to reprove someone, according to Matthew 18, 15. We'll start with, you know, find a private time and place. Pretty, pretty simple, but find a private time and place. You're going to kindly pull them aside. Somehow, like, hey, can I, can I talk to you for a second? After church, somewhere secluded, where there's no chance of someone overhearing or, or barging in. Like, hey, can we grab a coffee? I want to talk to you about something. It might be a little awkward setup, but so be it. I mean, you're going to have to find a time and a place to talk to them alone and have a a one-on-one conversation. So find a, a private time and place. Number two, express love and good intentions. Express love and good intentions. Where I'm a firm believer, you, you begin by just convincing them. You don't, you don't proceed until they're convinced that you love them and you have their best interests in Christ in mind. That, that You have no agenda here. Not, you're not after them. You're not their enemy. You're on their side. You just want what's best in their life. Like You, you love them. You're a brother. And then they're convinced of that. Work hard to convince them that you love them. And then you can move on. Number three, be clear, not vague about their fault. Be crystal clear about their sin or their fault. Not vague at all. You're going to next, as you have this conversation, you're going to kindly tell them you've witnessed them in sin. I saw you do this thing or I heard that you said this thing. And your scripture says very clearly, this is sin. And you're going to show them specifically and concretely as possible what they did. You need to clearly identify the sin in question. We're not talking about preference issues. Remember from the sermon, like we're not talking about preference. And we're not talking about secondary issues. You need to get to the main point, the, the clear cut sin that you have witnessed and identify it and even have perhaps appropriate scriptures on hand, because remember, this comes not by your authority, but by God's authority in the word. And so be equipped not to shove it in their face, but to say like, you know, here's a verse, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And uh, you can use that to, to graciously convict them of wrongdoing. That's part of reproof, right? In fact, one time I did this in my old church. I was college pastor. There's a young man who was known for just crude jesting and inappropriate jokes, especially around some of the young ladies. It made many of them feel very uncomfortable. And I knew that because they they told me. And uh, his crude jesting was going too far. It was violating Ephesians 4.29. And so I approached him. And I I had heard it too. And so I approached him one-on-one in our little apartment back in Burbank. And I I told him about this issue, which I had heard and, and witnessed. And so I did so in love and humility. And he still got defensive. He immediately got defensive and wanted to kind of joke it off. He's like, come on, like, what did I really say that's so bad? They just need to get a sense of humor. 
But there I, I was prepared with some specific quotes of some of the things he said that I just remembered and had in mind. I was able to present that with him or present that to him. So he knows, like, I'm not just making this up. And, you know, these ladies were seriously offended. And by God's grace, you know, those specific quotes of, like, what he actually said. It wasn't vague. Like, you know, I feel like you're being a little crude. It's, like, very specific. You said this, and it, it really did cross the line. And by God's grace, he, he did convict him when, when the specific quotes were repeated to him. And he realized, you know what, yeah, I, I see that. that. That is too far, and I, I need to stop and, and change. It doesn't always go that way, but by God's grace in that case, it did. But the point here is, either way, you need to be clear. Just be clear if you're going to do this. The last thing you want is miscommunication. That Half the time when things go wrong, I'm going to say it's, it's a miscommunication. So just be crystal clear about the actual fault or sin you're talking to them about from Scripture. I mentioned number four, consider sometimes indirect confrontation. Consider sometimes indirect confrontation. We're, we're unfortunately, we're, we're overtime, so bear with me. If you got to go, you know, go in peace. We're going to be a little bit overtime tonight, but we don't have time to turn to this. So just write down 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, where Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronts David over his sin with Bathsheba. And you'll notice he did that indirectly. He knew going through the front door and just saying to David, like, you've sinned, be rebuked, that David was probably going to receive that in pride. So he, he tells a story. And he gets David to convict someone in the story. And then he says, that's you. And the Lord used that to convict him because he condemned himself in the story. And you might say it's an indirect, it's a backdoor method of confrontation where you're getting them to see their sin themselves, where you're not actually showing them directly, you're getting them to convict themselves. So they're doing the convicting. And that's skillful. That takes more of a skill, but uh, consider it. We'll leave that for now. Maybe that's more of an advanced topic, but that can be helpful when you learn uh, different ways. A quick side note, many of you know I'm a big fan of letter writing as a a form of semi-direct, indirect confrontation where you really can control this conversation in a letter. We'll save that for another time. Lastly, we need to to speed it up though. Number five, when in doubt, go for questions over accusations. When in doubt, Go for questions over accusations. If you're not crystal clear on, on this, if you're not a clear witness of unrepentant sin, even if you saw them, you know, you caught that person lying, but you don't know, did they repent? You don't know. Just be careful. Withhold accusation. You could have things wrong. And instead, you still have that conversation, but you start by asking questions. That's where you start. Just ask questions. Clear the air. Hey, did, did you really say that thing? Or what did you mean by that? Or I saw you do that thing. Did you, did you know that, what scripture says about that? Or, you know, have you repented of that? Or, or whatever, like, or I could be mistaken, but did I get that right? That thing you did there? Or whatever it's going to be. Um, just, this is part of, you know, being clear, but if there's any doubt in your mind, you don't come at them a strong accusation. You be humble. You err on the side of grace. And just how about ask some questions to clarify, and then you, you're going to take it from there. Now, what do you do if the other person just doesn't respond well to what you say or it goes south or they are unrepentant? And there, well, you keep reading in Matthew 18, if, if the person is unrepentant, you are going to bring others, you're going to bring other witnesses to get involved. And you would bring in your pastors and elders to just counsel you and guide you and help you. At that point, you're really going to rely on others and your local church authorities to help 
do this work of reproving and rebuking. Um, so we'll, we'll save that. Again, church discipline is not our, our goal this evening, but for now, just kind of you worry about that first step and make sure you're doing that to the best of your ability. Remembering that the goal is not to condemn, but to restore. That, you know, you're a sinner too. And uh, you would want to be treated gently. And so you do that with others, like Galatians 6.1 says. Well, just to wrap it up, number four, the fourth G here. So we're trying to glorify God. We're going to get the log out of our own eye first. Then that the time comes, we're going to have to have a talk. And that talk is going to be classified as gently restore, not harshly condemned. But we're going to talk to them about their sin and show them their sin and convict them and call them to repent and, and turn. And the fourth step is go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. I think he was just looking for a G. I mean, it's really be reconciled, but he says, go and be reconciled. So it's four G's. But this is where uh, the sin is not over. It's reconciled. We're not just ignoring it or saying, okay, yeah, let's forget about that. But it's, it's truly reconciled, especially if there's a personal conflict. It ends in reconciliation. If there was a personal conflict, a forgiveness is exchanged, where if the person sinned against you, you are forgiving them. And you forgive them in the same way the Lord has forgiven you. You're not going to bring it up again. You're not going to use it against them. You're not going to let this damage their relationship any further. Just you're going to forgive like Christ forgives and make sure there is total reconciliation after this this process. Or if it's a non-personal issue, just make sure the person, you help them, you guide them through repentance and see to it that they're fully restored in their walk before God or if their sin impacted others, just we want to see total reconciliation vertically, horizontally be the outcome. And we're not, we're not going to stop till that happens. That's, that's when this is over, when there's total reconciliation. Well, there's a lot more we can say there, but I think we've got to kind of wrap it up. Hopefully these, these steps give you just a solid framework for just approaching a fellow believer in sin. Putting this into practice, I mean, look, it can still feel to you like this is awkward. This is scary and it takes wisdom, takes skill, takes discernment to do this, discretion. And it, it's a skill to carefully reprove and rebuke a fellow believer. But I would call you to, to grow, grow in wisdom, grow in knowledge, grow in grace that you can do this, especially those of you here who are aspiring to leadership in the church at some capacity. You will see people sin and sin against you. And you are called to be the more mature party, to see it be reconciled and They're not going to lead it to reconciliation. It needs a strong leader to lead others to reconciliation vertically and horizontally. So you be that leader. You you become a master in this type of conflict resolution and it's something to aspire to. And as you are growing in grace and wisdom, hey, never hesitate to talk to your pastors and elders. We will give you all the counsel and guidance you need. We're not going to do step one for you. You're still the the primary witness, right? You you still have to have that conversation, but we can give you a lot of guidance and counsel about how to skillfully and wisely have that talk or maybe write that letter or or whatever it's going to be. So just kind of in conclusion, this this whole thing, this whole discussion can just, it, it can feel foreign or strange or scary or awkward, but something we got to do. You got to get to the point you get over that little bit of fear of man or whatever it is because it lost that stick. Going back to Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
that's worse. It might be awkward to talk to somebody or like, I fear like, what if they don't like me anymore? Or if it hurts our relationship? Okay, then that might happen, but it's worse if they're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's the more loving thing to do? Love yourself more, your reputation more, or them more? You know, sin is a serious enemy. And look, we know there's no condemnation for those in Christ, but you see a fellow believer in sin, it can lead to ruin, hardship, suffering, discipline in their lives. It's not honoring to God. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we, we need help. Sometimes we need help to run the race, to disentangle from sin. We need others on the race to, to, to prop us up or to, to rebuke us, reprove us, get us back on track. Sometimes you need to be that guardrail, right? You, you're going to use the word and you're going to be the guardrail to keep someone on the narrow way. We all need that. Too much is at stake here. The church's purity, witness, holiness, and to go down the list. And so we need to commit to this. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're just trying to grow up the whole body into Christ the head. And so we will speak the truth in love for, really for Christ's sake. That's what this is about. That'll do it. Thanks, guys, for being patient with me. We went a little bit over time, but I'm glad we just, we didn't have to split it up. We got it all covered, at least most of it covered in one shot. So if you have any questions, come see me after. But I'm going to pray for now. We can be dismissed. Let's, let's pray. God, we're, we're thankful for your word and just how you have given us instruction on how to deal with sin. And sin is our enemy, especially just our own flesh can take us down so many times. And the spirit within is willing, but the flesh is weak. And how easily we can be entangled by sin as we run the race. And we, we all at times need others to help us to encourage us, pray for us, and sometimes even reprove and rebuke us. But that is, that is faithful. That, that is, uh, it's a beautiful thing when done right. That the faithful are the wounds of a, or, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We, we need that to be true brothers and sisters, to do the hard thing, but to do so in love. That, that, that is how the body is built up. And it, in your grace, it leads to a stronger unity because we know this person really cares about my soul. They love me enough to do a hard thing. And that uh, just the church is built up in Christ's image when this happens. So I pray we learn this. We take it to heart well and, and in a way become a master of it that we can be faithful. That's our only call to just be faithful in all these leadership tasks as we seek the whole body to be you know, built up into Christ's image. We don't want to tolerate sin, uh, but we, we want to be humble as well. So just help us walk that line. Keep the balance between uh, reproving yet but not being prideful. And in judging ourselves first and foremost, we just entrust these things to you, Lord, to grow us and help us to be leaders like Christ and to, to deal with others as he has dealt with us. So may we reflect his image in this. In his name we pray. Amen.